Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Something and, and I've ch- I've called it. We have one week left after this. The ecology of a missional disciple. The ecology of a missional disciple. Now, once again, there's five parts to this that we've been talking about. But I use the word ecology because ecology means it, it is the study of relationships among living organisms, including humans and their physical surroundings. So essentially, this term is a term that's to describe the study of a physical organism in terms of everything it comes in contact with. So what I'm saying to you today is this, is if we were to study you as an organism, it's kind of a weird way to say it, but you as an organism and the interaction and what happens to your physical environment and those who are around you during the week, would we be able to say that you are missional in your lifestyle and disciplined as a follower of God? So when I'm talking about the ecology of a missional disciple, I'm talking about the study of who you are and the effect that you have on those around you, specifically living on mission. Living on mission being the light in the darkness. Living on mission being the one who cares, carries one each other, one, everybody's burdens and thereby fulfills the law of the Lord. What I'm talking about today is how we live on mission in a world and really in an age where mission has been hijacked by every other thing but mission, it feels like. And so today I'm challenging us around this term, receiving. And if you've been here the last three weeks, I want to encourage you, if you haven't heard, they kind of stack on top of each other. Sermons are decent, but there's some good stuff there. Uh, no laughs. All right. Um, but, uh, but I want to encourage you today. What we've been talking about is we've been talking about kind of this five, five parts of being somebody who is a missional disciple. So the first one is seeing, then caring, then praying and receiving, and next week we will talk about what it means to go. So seeing, developing eyes that see the needs around us, eyes that see the world as God sees it. Caring, which essentially we did a a background check, I guess you could say, on the aspect of how much compassion was connected to Jesus' words and ministry. And then the next one we talked about was praying, getting a, getting a heart that understands that prayer is actually a part of the mission. And today, in my opinion, is one of the, I'm really excited to preach on because it's something we've all heard of, but receiving the plan from God or receiving the, the kind of agenda and what we know of that as believers, if you've been in faith, is this term called the Great Commission. And essentially what I want to introduce today is this. I want to talk specifically about how the Great Commission was actually something that was so out in left field. It was so ridiculous, the ask. It was so like, a lot of us read it and we're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all I commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end. Like, we can quote it. We're like, oh yeah, God, like, yeah. 
But we don't understand that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, it made zero sense. I'm going to get into it. It made zero sense. When he is going up to heaven and his final words are the plan, I guarantee all of his disciples looked at each other like, what in the world does that even mean? And I'm going to talk about it directly. But before I do, the reason I'm telling that using this word receiving is because I believe that God gives us plans that don't make sense, but we lean into them in faith and we find out that his fingerprints are everywhere if we've trained our mind to search for them. And so receiving today is believing that God is giving you something in faith. You know what's sad to me today is I believe in in some circles or in some ways of functioning, right, is that we want to hear from God, we want instruction from God, but we don't want to really have to practice any faith in God that extends us outside of our control. I'll never forget this. Uh, We talk about receiving and understanding what God's doing before and after the fact. Because I'll say this. I was telling somebody this before. I struggled with planning this church for over a year. Where I needed confirmation after confirmation. We moved out here with two friends two years ago. And when we moved out here, I, before we moved, I had over a year and a half struggled with if I was going to make this decision, what it was. We left all our family, left the church that we were supposed to take over, all because we felt like God called us to downtown. And so we moved from Michigan here. And what's funny is this, is as I look back on my life, I'm starting to realize that God has been, his fingerprints have been on everything that I've been doing pretty much from, from the moment I graduated high school until now as a 31-year-old. And so as we talk about this, I want to share, share and invite you into this place where you receive from God, but it's not this perfectly polished idea, but it is rather this obedience unto faith. Because that's what obedience is to you today. I want to reframe it. Obedience is not like, oh, your, your word is good, God, I'll obey it. Obedience is, God, your word is good, and I trust that as I choose it, it is better for me than if I chose anything else. And in faith, I will choose something that maybe feels like it costs and that it has sacrificed. But I know from the cost and from the sacrifice, there is promise. So receiving, I remember a few years ago, I I flipped some houses in my 20s. It's not fun. It's not cool. Now, some of you guys are like, if you're in the entrepreneurial vein where they're like, you know, real estate and buy low and fix it up and sell it. Like it's a really cool and you can make some great money doing it, but you also like sacrifice your sanity and also slam your thumb 50 times with a hammer and just kind of hate your life work until 3 a.m. multiple times. So that's my story. I enjoyed uh, cashing the check, but I enjoyed nothing else about it. So when I was 22, I bought my very first flip home. But what's interesting is now at 22, if you own your home, right? How many of you guys know that sounds like a good place to be? But what happened is this, is at 24, I was out about two years after I bought that home and fixed it up and was living in it. I was out going to garage sales. And as I'm going to garage sales, there was one neighborhood I stopped in, and this is in Michigan. There's one neighborhood I stop in. As I stop in this neighborhood, there's a garage sale in a really nice neighborhood, in a really nice part of town. And this house is roached. It is terrible. I mean, there are holes in the ceiling. The floor is rotted. It's the, the windows are bad. I mean, everything is bad. But I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, I'm at a garage sale. But as I'm walking around this house, I'm realizing this guy's going to have to sell this house 
And not only is he going to sell this house, but he's not going to be able to sell it conventionally, meaning you finance it. He's going to have to sell it for cash, which means that he's going to have to take a huge discount. And so I'm thinking as I'm walking through this house as a 24-year-old, I'm like, huh, I wonder if the owner's here. So I walk up and I go, hey, to the lady who's doing the cashier, hey, is the owner here? Yes, he's actually my brother. He's in the back. So I go to the back and I meet this guy. His name is Bud. And, and, and Bud starts talking to me about his history and starts talking to me about um, kind of everything that he's, he's, that, that the house has been. So for 50 years, it was in his family and then his father had passed. And when his father had passed, um, ultimately he was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? We, we're not going to fix it up. He was older. He said, we're not going to fix it up. So we're going to have to sell it. But I don't, and he looks at me and he says, you know, I don't really want to make a ton of money on this or somebody to make a ton of money off me. I'd rather this be a relationship that I have with the next homeowner in which we can walk through the house. We can be a part of the renovations, not saying picking the pain and anything, but just being a part of seeing this house come alive again as it was in disarray. And immediately I look at him and I, I, I'm 24 at the time and I look at him and I say, well, I'll do that for you. And he looks at me and he's like, what? I said, I'll buy the house. He said, you don't even know how much it is. And I said, well, how much is it? And he looks at me, he says, $60,000. And I look at him and I said, would you take 40? (laughs) I'm a deal hawk. (laughs) And he looks at me, and in my mind, I'm like, I have $5,000 in my bank account. So hopefully my parents are along for the ride. (laughs) But I remember this, right? He looks at me, and he goes, can you meet me in the middle at 50 and have a $5,000 deposit by the end of the day, 10%? I look at him, and I say, I'll be back in 30 minutes. (laughs) And I go, I clear out my entire bank account. I come back, I call my dad, I said, Dad, you need to meet me here right now, because I may have stumbled into a monster blessing. This was a three-bedroom, two-bath house, over 1,800 square feet, two-car attached garage, half acre, was amazing, and I don't know why I was buying it as a 24-year-old. So what happens, we buy it, we fix it up, me and my wife are married, and that's our first house, but what's interesting is those years when I bought it, I remember I'm living there as a single guy, like, why do I have this house? Why do, what is, I don't understand how this just fell into my lap until Phoenix started to churn in, the, in 2020. And as Phoenix started to churn in 2020 and as we're assessing, okay, are we going to jump off in full faith? I realized that the amount of money I have in that house would actually be the, the, the springboard of us into our next season. And so in faith, God had given me that house before the dream for Phoenix had ever come to pass. And then that house became the foundation of us being able to move here. And what I'm saying is this, is I could have easily walked through that house and said, I don't have 50,000 in my account. Why would I buy another house? I'm 24. I already have one. I could have easily, but instead I said, God, I know there's something you're doing opening this door and I don't know where it leads or what is going on, but I do know this that you've put something in my lap with purpose for a reason. And I took that opportunity and the purpose and reason became the foundation of what we were able to do here. And so I wanna challenge you to understand the framing today through that lens. Because what you have to understand about the Great Commission is the instruction was revolutionary in the direction and future of the life of disciples post-Jesus. Before this, there was only, what are we supposed to do without you, Jesus? Now it's, wait, are you serious? How is this even possible? 
The future of faith depended on the ability to receive a new message, walk through a new door, and obey in a new direction. So today, let's talk about why. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated to them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I would have loved if Matthew included who was the doubtful ones. Like, could you imagine being the ones who doubted on the mountain and then maybe being up in heaven now and be like, God, we were haters. It says this, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke says in Luke 24 that after this they worshipped him, he blessed them, and then was carried up into heaven. But today what I want to do is I want to break down key aspects that are overlooked in this culturally and even ethnically and geographically to paint a full picture of what was actually being asked of them and how they had to receive something with profound faith. So today, what I want to talk about is this, and I'm titling kind of these next few points, new instructions, new directions, and the new person you must become along the way. New instruction, new direction, and the new person you must become. Because what's sad to me is this, is when people come to faith, they come into environments where it's obvious that the presence of God is there, and we say, God, would you give me instruction and direction? And then the moment he starts to do that, we don't realize that he's actually challenging us to become a new person. Not develop ourselves a little bit better, but no, trade in sin for glory. To trade in our morality for the biblical understanding of what it means to be a believer and person in this world. What I'm challenging you to understand today is this, is when we talk about new instructions and new directions and receiving these things, you better believe it's going to cost you becoming a new person. And I pray today we do not ever come to the church with the understanding of let me cherry pick some things that will make me a little bit better. No, God, make me new. The reason we struggle with sin, the reason we struggle with not really changing is we're struggling with the idea of new creation. Trading in old and taking on new, clothing ourselves in righteousness when all we've known is the clothing of a fallen existence. And so today as we get into some of these points, I want to challenge you around this idea that you are called not just for new directions and new instructions, but to become a new creation. So the first thing is this, making disciples is the start, but we must be a disciple to make disciples. The pursuit of making disciples should, push, should be pushing your boundaries, comfort zones, ability to sacrifice, and self-discipline. You cannot, help make, you cannot help make someone something you are not. Being a true disciple will not allow you to live a lifestyle in which you don't attract and disciple others as you gain and grow. You must give and pour out. You know, what's interesting to me is I think there's a level of frustration with the Great Commission because we're like, okay, let's go and make disciples, but we're being challenged to make something that we aren't currently. Does that make sense? And what I'm not saying in here is everybody in here is not a disciple, but what I am saying is to be a disciplined learner should have breadcrumbs that point to something. 
And what's sad to me is when I say, yeah, we want the Great Commission. God, I want to make disciples. But you can't make something you aren't. Jesus is speaking the Great Commission to his disciples. People who have a track record of years of following God habitually in their habits, lifestyle, and focus of existence. So what am I trying to say is I think a lot of us, we want the instruction and the plan and, a, and faith, but we don't want any mark of being a follower. You know what's even more fascinating? So this is what I mean about the geographical um, aspect of this. And once again, this is the idea of being a disciple, because I'm going to say this to you. Disciplined rhythms and habits, the posture of being somebody who has this rhythmic balance of following God sustainably. I'll say this. It's not a perfect process or thing, but it's redundant. It's consistent. It's committed. It doesn't rise and fall and rise and fall. You know what's interesting about this story is this. Is Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. You want to know something? This is going to offend your mind. Jesus hadn't even done that. If you retrace Jesus' geographical area of ministry, it is an area of 85 square miles. Okay? He has 11 disciples that come from his ministry, 85 square miles. Now, we know that he travels by foot thousands of miles all over that 85 square radius. But I'm going to tell you this. Has Jesus gone into all the world? Has Jesus made disciples of all nations? I would venture to say he really hasn't. So what he's really saying is this, is, hey, you're a disciple, and I am going to call you to do something I haven't even done, step into faith, believing you can. See, what I'm trying to say is this, because you're a disciple doesn't excuse you from having faith that is so outside of what you believe you can accomplish, it rather validates that you are a disciple by believing you can do something outside of what you can accomplish. What am I preaching at today, church? See, to be a disciple is one who literally assesses the situation and says, if it requires faith, then that's where my calling should be. Not if I'm comfortable, not if it works in my schedule, not if, if they believe what I believe and voted for who I voted for. No, it is. I make disciples of all nations, and I trust that me as a disciple, God will use to disciple others. But once again, the interesting aspect, and this is what I mean, Jesus is floating up into heaven, and he's looking and saying, go into all the world and make disciples. I guarantee his disciples are looking at each other like, What's he mean by all the world? Like, I know he went to Samaria, and I know we've got some friction with the Samaritans. I know that he's done some of the stuff that he's talking about, but all the world, all of it, disciples of all nations, for, all, for most of Jesus' ministry, he's literally telling people, I'm here for the Jews. So you're, you're talking about nations we haven't been to, people we haven't talked to, and discipleship that we barely even know? Yes. What does that sound like? Faith. Isn't it cool that when we start to unpack everything, we just start to realize that faith is just the foundation of everything? And so to live a life without it is just to live dead so as I'm talking to you today, I want you to understand that, that truly what we're called to do, even when we are a disciple, should require faith. 
Even when we have followed Jesus and rhythmically been with him, there should be some high-level faith involved in you stepping out and you missionally engaging the world. My favorite and most frustrating, painful and most fruitful, the best part of, and worst part of ministry, discipleship. <laughs> Second thing is this. The presence and nearness of the Holy Spirit is the secret ingredient of the mystery, power, and joy of life in Christ. We cannot preach the gospel without prioritizing presence. Christianity is not self-help. It is the metamorphosis of scripture, spirit, and sanctification. I'd rather live by the spirit and be weird for it than die in a lifeless religion that never knew a fully surrendered reality of faith. You know what's interesting about the Holy Spirit is this. We know from the Bible that it is poured out and given in Acts 2. So listen, as Jesus is floating into heaven saying, go into all the world and make, dis and make disciples of all nations, everybody's like, huh, nobody's ever done that. Then he says this, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit been in ministry up to that point? It hasn't been. It's been like alluded to and a little bit like kind of a floating idea. But now Jesus is like, hey, when you baptize them, baptize them in the name of my Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I guarantee his disciples are like, okay, so we're supposed to go into all nations, talk to and make disciples of all peoples, and we're supposed to baptize them into something that we've never even heard of. Once again, faith. Once again, that doesn't make sense. Once again, that should be the plan you receive. Faith that a little bit doesn't make sense. But boy, if there's a disciple behind the obedience, the revelation of God's goodness and sovereignty will be revealed. Me and my wife's story, it made zero sense us moving here. We had an incredible church. Life could have been on auto autopilot. We had a staff of 20 people. It was great. It was easy. But I tell you this, one of the earliest words I had too was, God said, Micah, you'll always be able to preach from a place of knowledge, but very few will ever preach from the level of sacrifice that I am calling you into, in which you sacrifice everything. And the second thing is I felt like the Lord told me is he said, Micah, the worst thing for you is to have something comfortable that produces a distance between us. See, reliance on God is when you are so far out, stretched in faith, that you cannot afford to have distance between you and him because it literally sacrifices your sanity because you're not in control. You don't hold the keys that unlock the doors that you know you need unlocked. It is only him. And this is the place of being a disciple that God is calling, Jesus is calling his disciples here. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. What are you talking about? Jesus, you didn't even do that. Baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What even is the Holy Spirit? What I'm saying to you today is this. There will be levels of your journey that make zero sense and you have zero understanding, but you have peace. 
And when you live that disciplined lifestyle, what happens is you start to forsake certainty that doesn't produce peace for no certainty, but a peace from your faith being activated. You know, what's even more uh, interesting and I'm, is that I believe that, in my opinion, the enemy's greatest attack that none of us talk about is him profaning and defaming the role of the Holy Spirit to a believer's life. What I mean by that is we all know weird instances and crazy stuff that's been said on behalf of the Holy Spirit. People who have weaponized its power to, to, to get something carnal for themselves or build their own brand image or platform. We know people who have used this. The enemy's tactic is this, is if I can get you to forget about what was purchased... If I can get you to forget about what was purchased for you, what was purchased for you is the presence of God with you every moment of every day. Baptizing people into a reality where the divine is not distant, it is inside of us. And what I'm challenging you today is this, is for some of us in this room, we don't understand that God has called us to a deeper awareness of his Holy Spirit so that we can usher people into that deeper awareness as well. We don't literally baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Here it is. What we do is we live a lifestyle that rhythmically pursues the Holy Spirit in which it infatuates other people how you can live in existence like that, where the presence of God speaks to you where it fills you, where there's passion in your soul and in your bones to the point where it doesn't matter what's happening exterior, from in the exterior. It is about this internal posture of proximity. And I want to challenge you today to, to rhythmically, if you're somebody who you're like, man, the Holy Spirit is weird. That's out there. I don't know what you're talking about. I want to challenge you to do this this week. Whatever you do that's mindless, where there's times when you're alone or when you're going to bed, when you're driving, when you're brushing your teeth, whatever it is, I want to challenge you to just utter this phrase, come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come meet me? And try to do it three times a day for a week. And what I'm really inspiring you to do is not get this weird like energy idea, but rather you to understand that it's not distance, it's rather deeper awareness that's needed to experience it. The third thing is this. Don't get so busy doing, you forget about your being. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, is your painkiller when it feels like we have been fractured by failure, hopelessness, and the futility of trying to be a light in this darkness. He died to destroy the lie that the enemy tells you that you're alone. No one sees you or loves you. He truly is with you always. You know, a lot of us, we look at the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, preach them to observe all I've commanded, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son. But, and we focus on this aspect, right? This, this like punch list of things to do. But we forget that it is both a challenge and a reassurance. The challenge is to take what you know and give it to others. But the reassurance is to always remember what you're supposed to know, that he's with you, that he loves you, that his sacrifice wasn't for you to produce on behalf of him.
It was for his presence to be with you always. And I think what's sad today is we've gotten wrapped up in the productivity mindset culture in which everything is about overproducing, 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 the rat race in which we're always on a wheel and we can never get off. But to get off that wheel is to recognize that he's with us always, that it is he who produces, that it is he who is alongside us, that it is he who strengthens, upholds, and helps. You know, what's interesting about this particular passage is there's three things that I believe are overlooked as it pertains to Jesus's ministry. And they're, they're these moments in which Jesus climbs mountains. The first mountain that Jesus climbs is the Beatitudes. It says that he climbs a mountain and once at the top of this mountain, he then speaks and gives the Beatitudes, which would be the foundational address of all his ministry works. The second thing he does is he climbs a mountain, and in climbing a mountain, there's a confirmation that takes place as the transfiguration happens with his inner core in which Elijah, Moses, and Jesus all show up on the scene. Many believe that this is a sign of the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, which is essentially Genesis through that Deuteronomy, and then a fulfillment of that prophetic covenant, which is the back half of the Old Testament, pointing to... A new covenant, which is Jesus, a confirmation of sorts, of completion unto the Messiah. But what's funny is this, is that the Great Commission also is Jesus climbing a mountain to give the Great Commission that then he floats off into the mist of heaven. But what's fascinating to me is this, I believe it's important, and the writers designed that on purpose. Because it takes a climb and a journey to grasp the Beatitudes. It takes a climb and a journey to grasp that Jesus is the fulfillment of all. It takes a climb and a journey to receive the Great Commission as a command for our life. Are you willing to climb? Are you willing to take a new journey with God in which we receive a plane and a DNA from him that is outside of our control and constructs and it's full of faith? My last thought today is this. I was talking to a friend this week and this friend is one of my really close friends and we were talking specifically about how... um, specifically about how we started multiple habits at the same time and we laughed because he had stopped with the habits and he laughed and he said you know what's funny is is that I stopped but in all these habits you keep going and I got out of the car and I remember there was a profoundness where the Lord I felt like whispered he said Micah I'm proud of you for keeping going And I want to say this to you today. I believe there's a renewal and a revitalization of God's people who are willing to keep going today. Not willing to quit. Not willing to back down. Not willing to not live that lifestyle and be with Jesus and have the disciplines and the depth that show that. I believe there is a people that God is saying, will you keep going? Can you be described as one who will be keeping going? Because what a thing to go to heaven one day 
and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You kept going. Let's stand to our feet. just want to pray this over everybody so with every head bowed and every eye closed today I'm just going to read the great commission over us in kind of more of a symbolic uh, just letting us steep in it and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In closing today, I wanted to invite us. There's no shame if you don't know the Lord's Prayer. But as we go into worship, I'm going to start us and then let the voices carry as we all say the Lord's Prayer together before we worship one final time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 